0: This was obviously a, a visit from President Zelensky that is, was historic in nature and there is a war that is ongoing and, you know, mistakes do happen. I think getting to the bottom of that is the first step.
1: That is the voice of Canada's immigration minister, Mark Miller. He was speaking on television last week, just before the Speaker of the House of Commons, Anthony Rhoda, announced he was resigning. Miller is among a growing chorus of people now urging the Canadian government to release boxes of historic files and reports on Nazi war criminals who lived in Canada, files that have been kept classified for nearly 40 years. In 1987, the Canadian government received a report from the Deschen Commission. It was a commission of inquiry set up to look into whether Dr. Joseph Mengele, the so-called Nazi angel of death at Auschwitz, had somehow made it into Canada after the war. A respected Quebec judge, Jules Duchenne, was tapped to lead the inquiry, and they said Mengele never came here. But they did check initial reports about thousands of other Nazis being here, They whittled the list down to about 800 names and ruled out most of them. But they did urge the police to look into 238 cases, and especially 20 really bad guys. Now, most of the names and the files and what Ottawa did about all these people has never been released. And neither has the unclassified version of a 500-page report which Ottawa historian Alty Rodal penned for the Duchenne Commission. Her report outlined exactly how and why Canada let in so many former soldiers with ties to Nazi Germany after the war, including Ukrainians who served in the same Nazi SS waffen galician division as the 98-year-old Yaroslav Hunka from North Bay, Ontario, who's now at the centre of last month's parliamentary blunder.
0: There's no room any longer for striving for justice in that sense, but the story should be told. That is the most we can do now and should be told truthfully. And there's a lot to learn from this experience.
1: I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Monday, October the 2nd, 2023. Welcome to the CJN Daily, a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News, sponsored by Metropia. Last month, Alti Rodal was invited to meet Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky when he visited Canada, but she wasn't able to go in person. Rodal was born in Ukraine to Holocaust survivors, and she'd had a long career in Canada as a historian and Jewish studies professor. She and her husband recently co-founded a group dedicated to fostering understanding about the Jewish experience in Ukraine. But what many people don't know is that Rodal also played a key role in the Duchenne Commission. Her report in 1986 outlined Canada's policies about letting in former Nazis after the war. And she found that none of the 2,000 members of the Ukrainian Waffen-SS Galician Division who came to Canada were screened. She doesn't have a copy of her final report, and she wouldn't be permitted to release it now even if she wanted to because of government secrecy in her contract for the Duchenne Commission. Alti Rodal joins me now from Ottawa.
0: Thank you. Good to see you again.
1: It's good to see you again. And of course, all eyes uh, in the world are on Ottawa this past week because of what happened with saluting a former member of the Nazi Waffen-SS from Ukraine in the parliament and the scandal. And it brought to focus your work nearly 40 years ago with the Duchenne Commission.
0: So there are three questions that were posed to the Duchenne Commission. The first was are there in fact war criminals in Canada secondly if so what you know what can be done about it are there legal means what avenues are available to deal with crimes that took place in another place decades earlier and thirdly what is the story behind this what is and it's the history and that's me so this is this was the task that was given to me but what they wanted from me more specifically is to look at how such people people with such dubious backgrounds would have been able to get into Canada. What were the immigration policies, the security screening policies, uh, policies at the time with regard to admission of such people to Canada? And secondly, uh, once allegations were presented to the government from the 1950s on, what happened to these allegations? How did the government respond? What policies were in place or not to deal with allegations? So this is what I explored and what I found was uh, quite interesting, in fact fascinating because I had access to uh, public not available records uh, to the most top secret records, in fact cabinet confidences and uh, exchanges uh, with uh, with intelligence agencies and so on. And the the findings are um, in brief, that uh, on the on the first part, Admission, security screening, immigration policies. That from 1945 to 1948 or so, and even uh, 1950, on paper, the restrictions were severe. Any member of the of the Nazi Party was not admissible to Canada.
1: Right. There was a whole thing called moral turpitude. That was That's their right. that was yes. their barrier. Right. That they wouldn't yeah. be allowed in. But right. as you discovered, that wasn't actually. Followed,
0: right? Practices were different, and they were different for a number of reasons. It was when uh, there was a labor shortage. Uh, there were the bulk labor programs that just brought in people with brawn and um, and brain and muscles uh, to to work in the various industries that needed uh, people, and um, there was uh, very little screening. That was one route. Another route was the official route where they did go through a process, but the people who were put in charge of screening had not a clue about the complex histories, especially in Eastern Europe, of all these different groups and who they were. And so that was uh, a major uh, obstacle to proper screening. You you take an officer from Saskatchewan and place him in these uh, displaced persons camps many languages, many stories. Uh, he was at a loss and did, did what he could. And then there were those who preferred to look aside. That, and, the, and, the, and the big part of the story is that the Nazis were no longer the enemy. They were defeated, that story was finished, and it started uh, not in Canada, but in Britain and in the US. We, as Churchill said, How did he put it? We sweep a sponge across this period of history. And we start now with issues that are relevant today. And and those issues had to do with communism. Because we're talking now about people who are not in the Soviet Union, but outside. And who are the anti-communists? The anti-communists are those who fought with the Nazis against the Bolsheviks. What's important to keep in mind there is that the reason they were anti-Soviet is that they had good reason to be anti-Soviet. They had suffered a great deal uh, under the Soviets, and in particular Ukrainians and the Baltic peoples. Uh, they were striving for their independence, for their individuality, uh, and uh, were um, suppressed uh, by the Soviet regime. Um, and there were the deportations, and uh, and then then there's the experience for Ukrainians, especially the experience of a genocide of the famine. Um, so there are good reasons to uh, to want uh, to prevent uh, the Bolsheviks from taking over once again, and that is what was a, a key motivator uh, for those who went along with the. Germans.
1: I want to interrupt you for a second and, and bring you to a point that I read about Howard Morgolian, a colleague, of course, a historian who studied this period and said it, he he concluded that it was also a lack of staff. Canadian immigration people were just overwhelmed. Like you mentioned, there was these mass immigration policies to get laborers here, and there was just too many people for them to clear everybody. Plus, they couldn't get documents out of behind the Iron Curtain to validate alibis. Right. So
0: so let's let's focus on um, the division. The halishina Galicia Division, they were one of some 30 different Waffen-SS divisions from different countries. And um, the um, ones who who ended up in uh, surrendering to the British in 1945 in Italy, uh, there were 8,000 men and a very minimal staff to screen them. Uh, British staff.
1: Bottom line: you found a lot of stuff, and a lot of it was never made public. How did you How did you feel about that? that your work was kept redacted, a lot of it?
0: How did I feel about it? I understood why some of it was done, uh, but didn't agree with it. Justice Deschenes, in his own report in the postscript, wrote that the, the report on the history, the context for the war crimes issue, uh, is dealt with in a separate report, which is an outstanding contribution to understanding the issue, he said, uh, and should be distributed widely these are his words. Nonetheless, it went to the Privy Council office and, went, and officials went through it and decided that many sections were not to be made public. And my speculation is that the main reason was that it reflected badly on officials, politicians uh, over a, a period of time, and some of them were still around and didn't want to see this public. They used the uh, excuses like, uh, solicitor-client privilege, or they used uh, personal information, but there was very pers- very little personal information, in fact, because I had gone through it with that in mind, and so did uh, Justice Deschenes. So it wasn't that. Um, and then there were other you know, a variety of other uh, reasons, security, uh, national security issues. Uh, I don't think that th- there was any of that either.
1: It's so but... almost 40 years that this stuff has stayed out of the public eye, Do you welcome this as perhaps your sort of last chance to finally have this out?
0: Well, I feel that the gist of the story has been out since 1986. Uh, There are aspects of it that uh, are not out in detail, and the details can be damaging for for some people's reputations. Um, The key issues that I care about are not uh, damaged by not having this report, and that is uh, an, an appreciation of what happened during the war and Canada's uh, lack of caring and concern to to deal with issues that have, had to do with, uh, with the, the murder of the Jews of Europe.
1: Irving Abella once said, according to people who have quoted him, it was easier for Nazis to get into Canada than for Jews to get into Canada.
0: There was, right after 1950, a progressive relaxation of the rules so all who came afterwards under the relaxed rules came legally into this country and that includes the Waffen SS in 1951 and it includes the SS in 1955 and there is a conflation in the media and in public knowledge about the Waffen SS and the SS the SS are really the you no know, Hitler's men and uh, they Unless they committed a major war crime, they could come into Canada legally. And which one of them is going to tell you about a major war crime unless it's already a known one?
1: So what do you think when you watched the ovation for this Yaroslav Hanka? Did you know his name? Was he one of your guys?
0: No, I did not know his name, but I knew that a couple of thousand members of this division came to Canada and it's important for me to say a few words about uh, the division itself uh, when uh, they refer, keep referring to him, uh, a Nazi perpetrator of uh, horrible atrocities and the uh, participant in the Holocaust and so on. Uh, th- the story is much, much, much more complex. And it's one that's been written up quite uh, in, in a detailed, sophisticated form in a book that just came out this year called In the Milestrom by Miroslav Shkandri, a professor from Winnipeg,
1: were these guys given a uh, whitewash or carte blanche by the commission?
0: So, what was available in 1986 uh, was uh, did not provide any evidence that the division as a unit committed crimes. So, on that account, there were some some doubtful issues, yes, but there wasn't real evidence. To, to say that as a division, they went around and uh, committed particular atrocities or crimes.
1: But what about since then? Has there been new research since in then, the last 30 been, years? Yeah.
0: Yes, so there's been research mainly on the Polish front uh, that they had uh, raised a, a, village, a village to the ground. And there, there are a number of such findings from research by uh, credible uh, scholars. There are also stories of uh, suppression of uh, partisan groups in which there were Jews who were not uh, even fighters, but were hiding with the partisans and that they were drawn out and and singled out to be shot by a unit of the division. So going back to Deschen, you need to qualify that first finding in the way that I just did by speaking about individuals or groups that were later part of the division, but um, initially uh, had committed crimes long before the division uh, was formed.
1: What do you think should happen next after what happened in Ottawa?
0: Well, first of all, I think that uh, there should be transparency about the past. Enough decades have gone by. The story should be told as best one can tell it uh, based on the findings of authoritative historians. And my hope is that, unfortunately, the time is timing is not great, but my hope is that the Ukrainian community, uh, the people in Canada uh, will take aboard the history of the wartime and immediate post-war years, that that was then and this is now. These are different times, but we can look at the past and try to understand it learned from it. Ukrainians have a lot to be proud of. They have a few things not to be so proud of. And that applies to every country in Europe. In every country in Europe, uh, there were one to two percent of the population upon whom the Germans could count on to help them in their evil mission. So it's a very complicated story. And there's there's room for empathy for the people's who wanted to be themselves and wanted to have their culture and their identity and their state?
1: What should Canada do? Be transparent? Yeah. Should there be all these things put out um, and and effort made to go after whoever's still here?
0: No, there's no. They're all dead now. There's.
1: You said they're all dead unless
0: they're 98 years old when they when they were 18 in 1943. So in their hundreds you don't you (laughs) anyways the stories should be told and for canada the story of its own disgraceful aspects and decades have passed and it's time to to be truthful about canada's past as well
1: The current scandal about the Nazi in Ottawa does give a boost to the long-standing efforts by B'nai B'rith and the friends of Simon Wiesenthal and others to finally get access to these historic records. And that's hopeful news for David Matus, B'nai B'rith's Canada's senior lawyer. Matus was one of the interveners in the Duchenne Commission all those years ago, and he's been trying to pry these records out from the government for years. Matus wants any living Nazis here to be prosecuted. And he wants all the files released to the public online as a way to fight modern day anti-Semitism. David Matus joins us now from Winnipeg. Can you bring us up to speed on your efforts to get the full report and all the files released finally? and
2: We've put in an access to information request. We've met with government departments. We've made a submission to a parliamentary committee. Uh, We've raised the issue internationally through the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. Uh, We're we're sort of uh, knocking on every door and doing everything we can, but without results so far.
1: What are the challenges? What are privacy rules that meant that they couldn't release this or didn't want to?
2: If you look at the Access to Information Act uh, and and the Privacy Act, there's all Sorts of rules. I mean, privacy is one of them. Uh, The privacy rule says the documents can be released uh, uh, that that would otherwise be privacy twenty years after death. But the trouble is, we don't know the names of the people, uh, and therefore we don't know when they died. I mean, we know the names of the uh, cases that went to court, but we already have information on those cases. But the ones that never went to court, and there was lots of them. Uh, we don't have their names uh, or, or if they were just in confidential immigration proceedings, we wouldn't have their names either. So uh, we can't get records uh, partly because of that. There's the uh, national security. I mean, if you look at the, uh, with, with the Rodell report, the, uh, it's disclosed with exemptions and the exemptions refer to sanctions of the uh, Access to Information Act or the Privacy Act, national security relating to international relations cabinet secrecy, I mean, it's just more or less everything uh, under the sun. And the, 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 the Commission of Inquiry on War Criminals uh, report had, had two volumes, a public volume and a private volume. And we don't have any component of the private volume. I mean, not a word. Uh, and so, so that whole volume is missing. We've also asked for the files of the War Crimes Unit. And and there was a, over, over a thousand, a huge number. Uh, not all Nazi war criminals, but I mean, we were just interested in Nazi war criminal laws. And uh, the Department of Justice says they've given them to Library and Archives Canada. We've asked Library and Archives Canada. And they said, we don't have the staff. We don't have the time. We don't have the money. We can't possibly go through every word and every document and apply all the exemptions or or at least determine whether or not all these exemptions apply or don't apply. It's just uh, beyond us uh so uh that that's a problem i mean the international holocaust remembrance alliance says access to holocaust records should take priori- priority over all these exemption concerns the the access to information committee of parliament has said that these records should be released 25 years a- after they've been formed uh, because at that point they're historical Uh, Again, without regard to exemptions. And we do need something like that, something that's a blanket exemption so that you wouldn't have to spend this mammoth amount of money going through every word of every document with every exception to see whether any of them applies when mostly they don't. So
1: are there any problems for, do you see, that if this stuff does get out, how is that bad for the Jews or good for the Jews, right?
2: You're asking me what's the value of knowing history? Of, of course, there's a value of knowing history. Uh, the uh, George Santiana said, "Those who don't remember the past are condemned to repeat it." But if you don't know the past, you can't remember the past, and if you can't get the records, you can't get the, you can't know the past. So. Uh, it's uh, and and there are lessons to be learned from that history. I mean, we didn't do what we should have done, uh, and, and uh, that sort of history should not repeat itself. Canada should not be a haven for mass murderers, uh, war criminals, criminals against humanity, uh, uh, genocidal killers, and genocide it was not just a Holocaust phenomenon. It continues to this day. And and people from all over the world are, are trying to get into
1: Canada. Right, in- Iran, for example, there's some Iranian officials in Canada has no idea where they are. And
2: today, I, I mean, the system that exists now is obviously better than it existed uh, before uh, the Commission of Inquiry of War Criminals got going. Uh, but I wouldn't say that Every problem has been solved uh, on the backs or from the experience of the Jewish people. uh, There's still problems. And we still need to see this history to see what went wrong and what can be done right.
1: Do you know if anybody that was uh, suspected as a war criminal is still alive? Are there still any here? Well,
2: there's no cases pending anymore. Well, I mean, we had this whole... uh, Overlander.
1: Well, Overlander passed away.
2: Uh, I mean, there's this whole dispute about uh, Hanka. I mean, I have no idea uh, what what the uh, personal history of Hanka was, what he was involved in uh, or, or not. Uh, but there, I mean, there are some people, I mean, Hanka's example, there are still some survivors and perpetrators. Are They're elderly now. And the our, our primary concern, I mean, if there's going to be a prosecution, Today, I can understand that the records would not be available because uh, normally police investigation prosecution records are not available until the case goes to court. And, And we're not asking for private government records in ongoing or pending cases. We're asking for historical cases.
1: So you don't want to see new people prosecuted anymore because I was just wondering. Well, if there's absolutely if there's
2: if there's a case, it should be going forward.
1: How long do you think it'll take until government directives are given to Library and Archives Canada, the RCMP, whatever, to get this stuff out? Because, as you said, there's huge backlogs and they don't have staff.
2: Well, I uh, we may need legislation. There's no doesn't seem to be any opposition to this within the uh, the various parties, and I I think if the the government gave it parliamentary time that it could happen overnight. Uh, so, so it's just a matter of how important they think it is.
1: You must be very uh, you must have been concerned, and also like most Canadians, shocked about what happened in Ottawa. But this is the best thing that could have happened to your work in in years.
2: As far as I'm concerned, the best thing that could have happened is there would have been no Holocaust. I I mean...
1: Yes, of course. But the spotlight can't hurt, right?
2: Well, it it certainly has given some impetus to the issue. Uh, I, I mean... I mean, it, it, the whole thing is is, is uh, it, one tragedy after another. I mean, of course, the Holocaust was the ultimate tragedy, but then to let in Nazi war criminals, not to let in Jewish refugees, not to prosecute them, uh, and then went to prosecute them, do it such a, a bungled, delayed fashion, uh, it's it easy that uh, it, it it wasn't really done properly. Uh, it's, and what's happened recently, highlights the problem. But so far, I mean, it hasn't solved the problem. It just Cast a spotlight on it, and hopefully we'll we'll get some action on it. Uh, the because I what the Rota incident shows is is the ignorance in Canada about this issue.
1: Do you want this um Yaroslav Holunka guy, uh, guy, deported now? Is that been asking for that? Should they open a case here in Canada? Uh, what
2: happened with is is this uh, Waffen SS division, uh, uh, the Galician division was that. Uh, I mean, they were operating in Eastern Europe, but when the war ended, they were caught uh, in the West, uh, and and the, Brits, the British, they were caught in the British zone, and the British didn't want to keep them, they didn't want to send them back to the Soviet Union because they'd all be executed, and so they uh, they talked Canada into, uh, into accepting them. Now, uh, the Nuremberg Tribunal said, the, the Waffen SS, all of it, was a criminal organization, and every member of the Waffen SS was a criminal because of the uh, SS was a criminal organization. Uh, but uh, the uh, that Canada, by accepting, uh, if, if Canada were to start prosecuting the members of the uh, Galician division. Uh, because they're members of the SS that would be contrary to the agreement that uh, Canada had with Britain to take these people so i don't know if uh i don't i don't know if britain would care anymore but uh that that, that it it might cause a problem it, it, for for the trouble uh with the deportation system is that uh, of course Hunk is a uh, canadian citizen and you can only Revoke uh, citizenship through uh, fraud, false representation, uh, or concealing material circumstances, fraudulently mm-hmm. concealing material circumstances, and and you know we don't have the records. I mean, I don't, I don't, uh, we don't have his records, so I don't know whether there was fr- uh, fraud and right.
1: and he wasn't fraud. on the radar for Altiero's study at the time either. But in any case,
2: uh, I I don't know if there was fraud. There could have been fraud in his case because uh, the. Uh, I mean, he didn't come in in the normal immigration way. He came in as part of the Galician Division. So they, they knew <laughs> who he was at the time. So uh, I, I don't think he could be uh, revoked for fraud.
1: And how do you feel about the University of Alberta rescinding uh, or giving back the thousands of dollars that the uh, Hunka family gave? Do you think that was the appropriate response?
2: Well, I mean, that's the university's call. The uh, the uh, the, uh you see, this is the problem you have. Without getting records public, people don't know, uh, and they don't know what to do. Like this whole—I mean, if Rhoda knew, this wouldn't have happened. If the, I mean, if the University of Alberta knew, they they wouldn't take it and then revoke it. They would either, at the beginning, accept it knowingly or refuse it. The same with these monuments. There's a couple monuments in Edmonton and. Oakville, the neighbors have taken position; they shouldn't be there. But uh, it's it's not clear how my, how much the people who allowed them in knew at the time. The the history lives with us, whether we get the records or not, and we should be shouldn't be making mistakes because of hidden records. <music>
1: And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality, and customer care. Today's listener shout-out goes to Teddy Bernholtz of Chicago 58 Salamis and Pastrami and their other trademark products, including the Lanky Frankie Hot Dog. The historic Jewish deli company was founded in Toronto's Kensington Market 100 years ago, and they're marking the anniversary with a barbecue. They had it on Friday for customers and suppliers. We'll be bringing you a full episode on that story in the coming days. Thanks for listening to the CJN Daily.